Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 146, Burned Bridges Everywhere. Now, got no new patrons because it's been like two days since I recorded the last episode, and that means we're just going to jump right into things. Last time. Well, a lot happened. Tsar Alexander II of Russia, the man who had led that country to war against the Ottomans and thus liberated Bulgaria, was assassinated. Now, his reactionary son, Alexander III, rules Russia. Prince Alexander and Sofia saw this as his opening, and pressed on by the Russian minister of war, orchestrated a coup. The National Assembly was dissolved, something like martial law imposed, and a strict crackdown on the Liberal Party implemented. Of course, the Constitution was also suspended. Many of the Liberal Party leaders were put under house arrest or fled to eastern Rumelia. The subsequent elections were far from free or fair, and intense government pressure and tampering brought an overwhelming victory for the prince and the conservatives. The resulting Supreme National Assembly quickly gave the prince everything he wanted, a seven-year suspension of the Constitution, complete control of appointing a government, and a dramatically reduced legislature, with voting limited only to the wealthy and landowning elite. However, as the Austrian Consul General pointed out, quote, the assembly of Svistov was able to create a dictatorship, but not a dictator, end quote. Now, Russia, previously opposed to such a move, ultimately accepted it. Now, Bulgaria is ruled by a shaky coalition between Prince Alexander, the conservatives, and Russian military and civil officials. I say shaky because these three groups really do not align on a great many issues. However, they've made their bed now they have to lie in it. But first, some lighter news. In the final days of 1881, we saw the professional Bulgarian theater company, the very first one, founded in Plovdiv. So, hooray for culture. Now that that's out of the way, sorry I don't have more about culture this time, we gotta get back to the uh, more depressing politics. First, staying in Eastern Rumelia, I mentioned how many liberal politicians fled there after the coup. They brought with them a more fiery brand of politics. This slowly began to erode away at the kind of peaceful and cooperative political culture which had so defined Plovdiv and Eastern Rumelia. In particular, both the Governor General, Bogoridi, and the President of the National Assembly, Geshov, opposed the coup. However, Geshov was wary of disrupting Russian relations as he saw Russian assistance as critical for maintaining Bulgarian independence. This divide led to a closely contested election between Geshov and a rival with Bogoridi kind of endorsing that rival, and ultimately he named Geshov as finance director and kind of mended things, but All that is to say, politics is becoming a little more political, though in general things are still far more civil and plovdiv than they are in Sofia. 
Now, shortly after the completion of the coup, Battenberg toured the country along with a new Russian official fresh from St. Petersburg, whose presence was designed to kind of show that Russia supported the prince. However, almost immediately, issues began to arrive arise between Russia and its erstwhile partners. One area of conflict was in the Bulgarian army, which further strained Russian-Bulgarian relations. Now, officially, all ranks higher than captain were reserved exclusively for Russians. So, you can imagine all the young, ambitious Bulgarian officers who are beginning to discover that their careers have a very hard ceiling. And, as you can imagine, they're very unhappy about that. Outside of the military, there are similar clashes, with many Bulgarian officials chafing at the paternalistic and overbearing style of their Russian superiors. Again, a lot of people describe this relationship as sort of Russia treating Bulgaria like a colony or something, uh, so really looking down on locals. Indeed, from the lowest levels of administration all the way to the prince himself, it seemed Bulgarian officials expected to be treated as equals by their Russian counterparts. Instead, again, Bulgaria was treated more as a province or a colony. Now, elsewhere, the Russian agents in Sofia attempted to get some Liberal Party members appointed to the new state council, kind of the governing council, which Prince Alexander would use to control the government, as a kind of counterweight to the conservatives and the prince. Now, specifically, they approached the last prominent liberal politician left in the country, former Prime Minister Dragan Tsankov. They wanted to bring his moderate liberal wing into the fold. However, the conservatives absolutely balked at the suggestion, and it created instant bad feelings between them and the Russians. To make matters worse, Tsankov was now too put under house arrest, and soon anti-government demonstrations and strikes were becoming more and more common throughout the country as uh, the honeymoon period, if you want to call it that, of the coup began to quickly wane. By March, freedom of assembly was restricted and a crackdown was underway for all these kinds of actions. So, all this really ended up doing was making the liberals, conservatives, and Russians even more angry and distrustful of each other. Things only worsened when the Russians took another stab at the railway issue, convincing the prince to give them the authority to, and a kind of attempting to shift focus back towards their favored railway project and against the one favored by the Austro-Hungarians and, well, anyone with a sense of economics and a, a map of Bulgaria, really. All of this infuriated the conservatives, who really wanted to side with the Austro-Hungarian favored project because it just made more sense for the country economically. Another proposal was then put forward. Now, Bulgaria still technically owed Russia 28 million francs to pay for the occupations of the post-war occupation of Bulgaria. It was proposed that this money, instead of going directly to the Russian treasury, could instead go towards financing the Russian-favored railway. Now, this seems like an excellent compromise. The only problem is that Russia really needed the money and was attempting to get into Austria-Hungary's good graces, and so ultimately Russia decided it wasn't that interested in the rail project anyways and wanted the money more. So again, everyone ended up with egg on their face, and we saw just another case where, you know, one hand does not know what the other hand is doing when it comes to Russian policy in Bulgaria, right? Russia's agents in Bulgaria itself, right, they really go out on a limb, they really try to push this railway issue, and in doing so, they really anger a lot of people. And then it turns out that uh, 
central government in St. Petersburg never really cared to begin with, and all of it was just a waste. So things are not going great. Now, the Russian officials, once this is all, you know, properly bungled, turned to the army in an attempt to curb the prince's influence there and generally undermine him. They worked to spread pan-Slavic and anti-German sentiment amongst the Russian officers, leading to further conflicts between the prince and some in the military. To quote Rekun, quote, By this point, there was not a single faction or politician in Bulgaria who did not have serious cause for complaint with the Russians. All of the Bulgarian elites had reason to feel disenchanted with Russia, end quote. And really, it's, it's no surprise, right? Russia decided, okay, we're going to back this coup and then just immediately started approaching the liberals, even though they just, you know, backed an action which firmly put them out of power, um, you know, bringing back up the railway issue, you know, just they, they empower someone and then they undermine them. Their policy is just all over the place. Meanwhile, the liberals had realized that while that the kind of erstwhile dictator of the prince was actually kind of a paper tiger, really rather weak, and their best bet was probably just to add to all the chaos or maybe just watch and watch it all kind of blow up in his face. Uh, but all that is to say that they could see the writing on the wall that things were already not going well. They decided to boycott the elections for the new state council and published a party manifesto rejecting anything other than the complete restoration of the Turnival Constitution. Indeed, to quote Black, quote, One of the chief purposes of the Council of State had been to provide a strong governing body upon which the prince could rely and which would at the same time absorb the criticism directed against his regime. It was therefore a great disappointment to him, to see the council so weakened by the rivalry of the Russians and the conservatives, and by the abstention of the liberal leaders, that it was unable to take the initiative in the reorganization of the government which Battenberg seriously desired to accomplish. End quote. Again, the irony is that what looked like a sudden concentration of power in the prince did nothing of the sort, and only served to worsen the tensions between the political groups fighting for power. To make matters worse for the prince, a revolt had broken out in Herzegovina against recently imposed Austrian rule. Badenberg wanted to support Vienna, but many of the Russian pan-Slavs in Sofia had been organizing to assist their fellow Slavs against German oppression, further driving a wedge between the prince and his key supporters. By the spring, it was clear that, as Rekun put it, quote, Badenberg's government had to be propped up by one of the two factions in Bulgarian politics that still had wide-scale popular support, the liberals or the Russians. Faced with that kind of choice, Battenberg chose to ally with the Russians. End quote. So with this in mind, in May, the prince felt the need to travel to St. Petersburg once again and ask that several problematic Russian officials who were causing all kinds of issues for him be replaced. He was desperate for Russians who could be partners instead of simply throwing fuel on the political fires raging in Sofia and perhaps starting a few of their own. Now, Badenberg wanted the return of Enruth, that Russo-Finnish former minister of war who had kind of pushed the coup to begin with. But the, Munis, the Russian minister of foreign affairs told him that this was an absolute non-starter. Instead, two career military men who had fought in the recent Russo-Turkish war were sent. There was Lieutenant General Leonid Nikolaevich Sobolev, who would be the new minister president, and Major General Alexander Vasilevich Kalbars, 
who would be the new minister of war. But only after both men received the approval of pan-Slav elements within the Russian government. So if you want to think of it that way, you know, they're going to send people to help uh, Prince Alexander, but only once people who don't like Prince Alexander give their seal of approval. So it uh, doesn't, doesn't look that, that great for him. Now, the fact that they got that approval should come as no surprise because the two men ended up being the most hardline pan-Slav and anti-German agents of Russia in Bulgaria yet. Sobolev, in particular, thought that democracy was a kind of Western import unsuited to Slavic people, and he supported the Liberal Party because he saw it as being pro-Russian and anti-German like himself. Though there's some contradictions there, but regardless. In other words, there was no reason at this point to think that these two men and the new government formed around them in June would be any different than their predecessors. Or indeed, frankly, they could very well be worse. Importantly, Battenberg saw this new attempt to form a functioning government as his last attempt to work with the Russians. In his mind, if this failed, he would see himself as under no future obligation to Russia and that he could, with a clean conscience, attempt to run Bulgaria on his own the way he wants. Now, as the summer drew on, the prince floundered, giving more frustration that even the new order he built for himself at Svistov didn't give him enough power and authority, didn't give him what he wanted. The conservatives had proposed some constitutional amendments earlier in that year, basically what they asked for originally, a bicameral legislature, fewer representatives, and indirect voting, all of which would benefit them politically. But the government was still trying to work out just what it wanted with all this power it suddenly had, in theory at least. In the words of a British representative in Sofia, the prince believed that, quote, under a constitution, the sovereign is to be vested with full executive power, and that the government will not be dependent for its tenure of office on a hostile vote of the representatives of the people, end quote. In other words, it seemed Prince Alexander by now firmly believed that any democratic check on his executive authority was completely unacceptable. He believed that Bulgarians were not ready to govern themselves and that he therefore ought to have such power until a new generation capable of running the country came of age. Now, if you've ever studied the process of decolonization, that should all sound pretty familiar. And in general, you can imagine uh, from the Bulgarian perspective, hearing this from, I think he's 24 years old at this point, um, that, that probably comes as being pretty rich. But there you have it. Now, as things are progressing, the, the summer is waning on, soon our old friend, the railroad issue, reared its ugly head once again, as Sobolev, one of those new two Russian agents, the head of the uh, council, once again attempted to pressure Bulgaria to build that Danube line, which uh, recently we saw St. Petersburg was not that interested in, but here we are again for some reason. The prince responded that Bulgaria simply could not afford it, but they would be happy to build it with Russian financial help. The emperor in St. Petersburg responded again that Russia would not provide financial help, but would be happy if the Bulgarians built it. Just round and round we go. The whole issue is just brought up again and again, and every time everyone gets angrier and everyone ends up in the same place. No progress ever seems to be made. By this point, the Bulgarians were annoyed that Sobolev was pushing them to build this expensive and not really needed railroad, while Sobolev felt that the Bulgarians were not loyal enough to Russia, and in fact were acting for Austria by preferring the Vienna to Constantinople line. 
you can imagine for me doing the podcast right now, just I'm, I'm rolling my eyes extensively. So besides that, there's another new issue of the gendarme. Remember last time the Bulgarian police was, were disbanded after the coup and replaced by a more kind of military gendarme unit. Now, the gendarmes have been, again, replaced themselves by a dragoon corps of mounted police led by Russians, which was pretty unpopular with the general Bulgarian population. For now, though, arguments over what to do with these dragoons and just how to handle this issue are ongoing. Now, all of this brings us to late 1882, when fresh elections for the new National Assembly were unsurprisingly won by the conservatives. Because remember, most of the liberals are in exile or under house arrest. They can't really properly kind of uh, advocate for themselves. They can't really campaign. And voting is basically limited only to the wealthy. So yeah, no surprise. Now, there was speculation that the Russians might actually support the liberals in the election, but they ultimately didn't. The conservatives, for their part, hoped that the new National Assembly could check Russia's power and influence. However, only really served as an even more public forum in which the disagreements that they had could be fought over. So again, nobody really wins in this. Now, the first such issue was those dragoons I just mentioned. The National Assembly tried to force them to disband by withholding funding, but ultimately the prince and the Russian officials worked together to prevent this. But things almost came to disaster anyways, as the Bulgarians and cabinet attempted to resign before everyone kind of realized that this would leave the entire country in the sole charge of a German prince and two Russian generals, and that there weren't any other competent Bulgarians in the country at that time to replace them. So the kind of council that was running things, the the conservatives really couldn't resign because that would just make things even worse. So that failed, but the controversies just kept on coming. The same night of the Dragoon issue, kind of that was resolved after much yelling and attempted resignations, a letter arrived from Exarch Yosef I directing the government to remove the Metropolitan of Sofia from his post. Now this man, Meleti, was a Bulgarian nationalist and a Russophile, but a more pro-Ottoman man named Grigory was angling to take over as Metropolitan of Sofia. In theory, the government wasn't supposed to really interfere with church business. Uh, However, Meleti was very popular and again was pro-Russian. So it was, impro- it was proposed that instead of him being sent to Vratza, as, been re- as had been requested, that he should be banished to the real monastery and given a pension. Now, it's all kind of complicated, but there were some disagreements, some miscommunication between the Bulgarian in charge of religious f- affairs and the Russian general Sobolev. And ultimately, Sobolev saw the removal of Meliti as another attempt by the conservatives to embarrass Russia, even though it was kind of originated by the church itself. So long story short there, after much back and forth before uh, you know, Melody was ultimately banished to Kustin deal instead. And the result is that those two Russian officials in cabinet, Sobolev and Kalbars, basically decided that they could no longer work with the Bulgarian conservative cabinet members who had overseen the whole incident. To quote Rekun, quote, Battenberg would have to choose between the last major conservative in the government or the Russian generals. It was not really a choice. Battenberg had summoned the generals at his own request not nine months previously, and he could hardly get rid of them now. End quote. So just, just imagine, it's only been nine months since these new Russian officials had come, and already things are just in shambles. So 
March 1883 saw the final conservatives in the cabinet give up and resign, meaning what they feared came to pass. Russian officials were now completely in control and effectively running the country alone. However, in the process, they had lost every single friend and ally imaginable. Prince Alexander's coup and resulting attempt to govern with a coalition of Russians and conservatives was now well and truly over. Bungled. It was a mess. Alexander now faced the realization that working with the National Assembly might actually be easier than working with St. Petersburg and its endlessly inconsistent agents. So, now we're pretty deep in the weeds of Bulgarian politics and we've been there for a while. And I want to take a step back and catch up on what's been happening on the wider geopolitical stage before picking back up with Bulgarian politics. First, close to home, Romania has begun the process of Romanianizing, I think that's how you would say that, northern Dobruja. Bucharest has been encouraging Romanians to migrate there and for local Bulgarians and Turks to leave through a variety of means. In April 1882, land there was nationalized, so it was all put in charge of the government, and its previous owners had the opportunity to buy back only two-thirds of what they had owned previously, while the rest was given to Romanians who were willing to move to the region. So this further shifted the ethnic makeup and dispossessed many Bulgarians and Turks who had been living there, some for centuries. Of course, Bulgarians weren't immune to similar tactics to push out people they didn't like and make their territories more ethnically homogenous. 1882 saw Eastern Rumelia pass a new land tax, which, instead of taxing production, as had been the case before, taxed the amount of land someone owned. Now, this was important because Turkish farmers tended to use a system where some fields were left fallow, or not planted, in order to rejuvenate their nutrients. And so, this hit them particularly hard. Now, this tax also stipulated that land left uncultivated for three years could be taken and sold to other locals. So, together, these policies further pressured ethnic Turks to emigrate from eastern Rumelia. Now, Another incident that had been playing out over 1881 and 1882 was the proposed marriage between Prince Alexander and Princess Victoria of Prussia, daughter of Prussia's crown prince and granddaughter of Queen Victoria. So this was proposed. However, the Kaiser and Bismarck opposed the marriage for fear it would upset Russia. You can imagine if Russia really kind of doesn't like Prince Alexander because they see him as a German agent, giving him a... Your wife, who's literally the daughter of the crown prince of Prussia, it's only going to inflame things more. So that went nowhere. And for now, the prince is still a bachelor. A bit further away, the assassination of Tsar Alexander II actually triggered years of intense anti-Jewish pogroms throughout the Russian Empire. The reason is that one of the conspirators was Jewish, although others were accused of being Jewish by the Russian press, and anti-Semitism was already kind of common in Russia, and so the false blaming of the assassination on Jews served as an easy excuse and trigger for all the violence that followed. So exact numbers are hard to come by, but there's evidence of at least dozens of murders and hundreds of rapes that occurred throughout the Pale of Settlement following these, the, the assassination and the resulting kind of violence in response. Now, as I've alluded to, Russia itself was also really realigning geopolitically at this time. Remember, back in 1873, the Three Emperors League was formed between Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Germany. 
these three emperors had closely aligned interests in basically preserving arch conservatism. However, geopolitics eventually trumped ideology as worries about Russian influence in the Balkans and its promotion of pan-Slavic ideas led to the League breaking up in 1878. This, as we know, led Austria-Hungary to move closer to Germany and then for Italy to join them to form the Triple Alliance in 1882. The Three Emperors League was technically revived in 1881, but again, the competing interests in the Balkans between Russia and Austria-Hungary, which led to the breakup of the League in the first place, were never really resolved. But as we've seen with Russian policy towards Bulgaria, St. Petersburg is still very concerned about not upsetting Germany and Austria-Hungary too much for now. And so at this moment, the Three Emperors League is technically back in existence, but in practice, it doesn't mean very much. Instead, the dual alliance between Germany and Austria-Hungary and the looser triple alliance between those two in Italy are far more concrete and showed that Russia was being pushed away from its previous allies over its Balkan policies, which meant Russia was soon going to have to find new allies. In the meantime, though, the main location where Austria-Hungary and Russia were fighting for influence was in Serbia, which, newly independent from the Ottomans after the Treaty of Berlin, declared itself a kingdom in 1882. Prince Milan of Serbia became King Milan I. Now, he was working to balance Russian and Austrian influence and basically tried to not allow either to dominate Serbia because that would be very dangerous and invite potential conflict with the other power. But around this time, Austrian influence was getting quite a bit stronger than Russian, and Milan was taxing the population heavily to pay for a growing army and more economic investments. All this meant that he wasn't very popular with his people, but for now he was managing. So when we look at Serbia, they're trying to grow their military, invest heavily, they're taxing, trying to balance those two great powers, but leaning a bit more towards the Austrians. And that's going to be it for today. Prince Alexander's coup was successful and even managed to get Russian backing, but less than a year in and everyone involved has managed to bungle things so badly that it seems that every bridge and every political player in Bulgaria has been reduced to ashes. Meanwhile, geopolitics in Europe are rearranging once again as the Three Emperors League is revived and the creation of the Triple Alliance sets the stage for the great European conflicts that, well, we all know are coming. So next time, we'll see just what the prince, the conservatives, and the Russians choose to do in the light of their complete failure to govern Bulgaria together. Obviously, we'll also see how the liberals respond to all this and what they're going to do or are they just going to kind of fade away. All this in the context of this wider kind of European geopolitical realignment. And well, things are going to stay messy, let's just say. So you will have to check that out. It'll come probably at the end of October. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy, stay safe. Then this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the link below in the episode description for timeline, major characters, images, all that good stuff. And I'll catch you in the next one.